you're someone who's like a 20 handicap and you wanna get down to a 15, fortunately, if your handicap's higher, like the easier it is. And welcome back, welcome aboard another part train. I'm one of your hosts, Evan Singer. I got Matt Cermak here with me. What's up, Ev? It's good to be back. You we know, haven't recorded a podcast because we batched all of our shows, assuming I was going to be on my honeymoon, and then I got COVID and we had to move the honeymoon, so we haven't recorded in like three weeks. But uh, were we like rusty? We I don't think it's so. Like, it's like we never left. Yeah. <laughs> it's like riding a bike. It's true what they say. But guys, if your golf game's off the rails, if you're sick of riding the struggle bus, you've come to the right place. The part train helps frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again. Because if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. The Par Train Podcast unpacks the mental game with PJ Tour Pros, best-selling authors like today with John Sherman, CEOs, sports psychologists, everyday golfers like you and me and more to make the hardest game in the world feel easy and help you finally get back on track. This episode of The Par Train, like every episode, is presented by our friends, Roback Activewear. And guys, they just dropped. They didn't even tell us. They just dropped it. They dropped women's joggers. And I'm telling you right now, they made it out of the guys don't even get this. It's only for the ladies. They made their joggers out of the hoodie material, a.k.a. the most comfortable hoodie in the world. So stop this podcast right now. Go to Roback.com, enter the code train or click the link in our show notes or our bio at the par train on Instagram and get your wife, girlfriend, sister, mom, whoever joggers before they sell out because they're going to sell out as a limited run. These things look so comfortable, and Tara, my wife, is ecstatic that I got a pair of for her on the way. And if you're going to get yourself <laughs> something, you're going to be lounging around in the holidays, get the long sleeve tee. Yeah. I have my chiropractor cool. said the other day, he goes, hey, is that rollback? I go, yeah. <laughs> he goes, I've been seeing a lot of that. I was like, well, yeah, they're everywhere. So yeah. long sleeve tee is my go-to lounge and workout too. So. Yep. Code train, 15% off or... Tap the link in our bio at the Partrain on Instagram or in these show notes. Okay. John Sherman, the author of The Four Foundations of Golf, Amazon number one bestseller right now in golf. Yep. Um, we reposted some of his stuff on Instagram and Twitter, and it was going crazy. So we said, okay, we need to get John on the show. And I think this is a similar episode to the Scott Fawcett and Lou Stagner. So if you like the type of stuff which is rooted in strategy, course management, and data. I thought I mean, if, this was if you a want really, to get better. If you want yeah. to get better, this is for you. <laughs> yeah. And I know Sir Max been wanting to do more course management stuff. So you could tell he really lit up during this hour. Yeah. He was loving it. And I think this could really transform your game. A hundred percent. And John's a great story. He's been playing since he was a kid, kind of battled the game, battled his temper, played division three and He's a plus two now, right? And throughout his journey, he's tracked all this, the do's and the don'ts and really got into the data and he's published a ton of works and not only number one in golf on Amazon right now for books, sports psychology as well, or at least mm. he has, he was in the last couple of months. So fantastic episode. This is a real guy. We talk about his club championship. We talk about playing in section tournaments. What were the keys to get to a plus two? You know, but we talk a lot about, and it's very practical what the 20 handicapper needs to do to get to a 15. So John's awesome. We had a ton of synergy together with both our platforms and our messages. And I just think there's a great crossover with our fans and glad we had him on. I felt like we could have gone for hours. Definitely listen to the end because he goes through a story of his old mindset going into his club championship. Yeah. And then his new mindset going to the club championship and he won for the first time ever. So that was really good that we got into. That's kind of in the like last quarter of the show but yeah guys if the show this show other podcasts any content has helped you add any value lower your handicap make you enjoy the game more most importantly do us a solid give us a review on apple Podcasts and spotify so that other people can be inspired by your story and hop aboard as well yeah and no matter what what do they got to do sir just enjoy the ride enjoy the ride guys take care John Sherman, it is our pleasure. Welcome aboard the train. Your first time riding the train. We're happy to have you on board. What's up, John? Thank you, guys. I appreciate the invite. Making a lot of pars is, is, is a good thing, so I'm happy to be on the par train. You know, some people would say <laughs> the not enough people value the power of a par. Oh, people the easy are trying pars, to get birdies. Easy, yeah, 
easy pars is the secret to golf. You want stress-free pars. That's the, that's the real secret. I'm sure we'll get into that more, but I know gave it away. <laughs> I know people are going to love this episode, John, because we've actually had Scott Fawcett, who I know is a big fan of your book and your work and Lou Stagner, who also does a lot of stat driven stuff. And I think the stats mixed with course management and mental game is a really strong tool because it gives people, I think, background and support to really stick to their strategy. And I think it roots us in the facts. But before we get to that, I got to ask you, John, you're a Rocky fan. We saw we're Rocky, Rocky fans. Four. Rocky four specifically. Rocky four. What can golfers learn from Rocky Balboa? Oh, I mean, <laughs> you want to turn this into a five hour episode? <laughs> I mean, let's do I it. Was just, have five I parts. was actually just texting with a friend of mine who I, I put out a tweet being saying that if you put the same five songs on repeat from Rocky four, you can literally accomplish anything. It's how I wrote my book. It's how I did get workouts in. <laughs> and a guy I'm friends with who used to be like a top doubles tennis player in the world. He like texts me. He's like, that's so funny because I'm working out right now in my garage to Rocky four <laughs> in, in the garage too. in the garage. It's he's in Scotland and it's freezing and he's, he's pumping it out. But yeah, I mean, I think relentless optimism, self-belief. I mean, how many themes can we dig out of Rocky four? I think he's like the greatest fictional character ever because he feels real to everyone. My wife's from the Philly area and like he's real oh, to yeah. them. Like he's a real person. Yeah. That was what was so brilliant about the first movie. It's just a guy off the street looking for. Yeah. For a break, I think also, yeah. Know? Like I, I think <laughs> an or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ordinary, ordinary person can accomplish amazing things if they're willing to deal with all of the monotony and setbacks and all the boring stuff in between. 100%. Easy way out. Shortcut home. That's right. Matt, I think Matt wanted to ask you who has a better soundtrack, Rocky oh, or Top Gun? Original Top Gun, unbelievable. Same year or year apart. I just watched the new Top Gun finally. It was awesome. So I, I mean, for me, like, I would, what am I still listening to? Rocky Four. Yeah. So I think that, that would be my answer. Yeah. I've worked out to Rocky Four soundtrack as well. So I well thank God because if you I, haven't, we wouldn't trust it. Yeah, it's true. So <laughs> if that's if that's the only thing you get out of this whole episode, like I might have gifted you something serious in life. I mean it I went to my wife yesterday because I sent out the tweet. I was like, I was working out, she was wrapping a bunch of packages and gifts for our kids. I put it on and she loves Rocky, obviously, because she's from the Philly area. Yeah. And we were just like getting it done. I'm like, I'm like, what can't you accomplish to this music? So that's my gift to everyone. This is what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. I love it. People have already, you can turn it off now and you've yeah, gotten what you came done. for. All right. Well, there's a ton of stuff we're going to get into. I know you've done a lot of great interviews. You got your own podcast called the Sweet Spot Podcast. So as always with our guests, we're going to try and give people a unique take but i'm sure there's going to be some overlap just on core concepts i actually wanted to start because serm and i were debating this when i posted your i think it was like i can change your golf game in less than five minutes using graphics and we reposted that on instagram and it like went crazy which is what sparked this conversation and the one thing that stood out to me was the greens and how greens regulation is really the biggest predictor of scoring. But the one thing I want to talk about is I think it said scratch players shoot around 50, I think it was 52%. Yeah, it's about so around half. Yeah. Um, so nine yep. greens around, which I think surprised a lot of people. But let me ask you, is there anything else other than club selection and aiming at the middle of the green that can help the average player hit more greens? Because a lot of comments were saying, well, of course, I'm trying to hit more greens. But I challenged them. I was like, yeah, but are you though? <laughs> like, are you consciously thinking about, am I doing everything in my power to hit this green? Because a lot of us go into autopilot and we overshoot the back, we go for the pin. But what else is it? Is it just those two things I mentioned? Or are there other things no, to help no, you get more I, greens? I, I think you look at it from a strategic perspective and then a ball striking perspective. So from a strategic perspective, I would say for quote unquote, the average golfer, the mistake is quite similar when you look at, you know, the shot tracking companies and the data they have. Most golfers are just missing the green on the short side. And that's either not taking enough club or poor quality strike mixture of both. If you're going to be missing it directionally, you know, if you're chasing a pin on the that's tucked on the left or the right, 
or you just have poor face control, you can't control where the club face is pointing at impact. That's an issue too. Most golfers, another, I think an image on that, on that thread was that no matter what handicap level you are, only 5% is the average roughly of, of people missing the green long. Like people are not nuking greens because mm. from a ball striking perspective, like you're not going to hit it too well. Most of the time, if anything, you're not going to strike it well. So strategically, like that's why I tell people aim at the meat of the green and and take either the back yardage or maybe the two thirds back yardage, just to give yourself an opportunity to hit the green. And that helps a lot of players. If we're looking at it from a ball striking perspective, in terms of the skills necessary, we talk about this as, as our big three on the sweet spot all the time. It's quite simple. It's how are you striking it on the face? How's your ground contact and how's your face control? I would say strike and ground contact are probably the two things that hold most people back and why most people do miss it on the short side. You're not going to hit it on the sweet spot every time. And a lot of people struggle with the low point of the club. Are they interacting with the turf too early? Are they hitting it thin? That is a very oversimplified explanation of ball striking, but that's what's being asked of you. And that's why most golfers ultimately miss the greens. I think if I had to put a percentage on it, 60, 70, 80% more towards the ball striking side, and then maybe 20, 30% cleaning up your target selection, that's going to be the most influence. And, and it's very important because as Mark Brody has shown in all of his work is that that's where golfers separate themselves in terms of scoring is with approach play, like iron play, you know, hybrids, fairway woods. Like it's, it's just so, so, so important for scoring. That's great. One thing I would add, I want to get your take is when you watch higher handicappers start to develop a little bit and get better. Mm -hmm. You know, they can focus on, if they can figure out a way to focus on their short irons, 120, 130 in, because let's be honest, that's an easier, generally an easier shot than 180 yards out. For sure. Is being able to hit, at least starting to hit more greens with those approaches. But a lot of that has to do with being able to flight your ball, right? More down. So how do you work that in? And when do you work that in as part of that, those couple elements you mentioned? I think it depends on the player. I think some golfers, if they have that, for the most part in terms of ball striking, I think average players generally add too much loft with their irons, that scoopy action. So yeah. when they get inside of 150 yards, like most really good wedge player and short iron players, they're de-lofting it and they're keeping the ball down. Back and in the stance, yeah, a lot of golfers struggle with that, you know, working on like shaft lean exercises where you're, I would even say, start with your wedges, take a 60 degree wedge and, and exaggerate like really forward shaft lean with yeah. like a 50 yard shot, just so you could feel what that is getting the ball lower. You're presenting 50 degrees of loft instead of 60. So when you move back to like that 125 yard shot, yeah, a lot of golfers can't keep the ball down and they're they're either losing distance, it kind of flails in the wind if you're playing in windy conditions, but one simple answer for some players is just to take more club. You know, that solves the loft right. problem right there and the spin problem and then you you can maybe so choke it, down on it a bit. Bring a little smoother. Not yeah, it, it, it depends it depends on the player, I would say. Like I'm very comfortable making full swings from those distances because I do de-loft quite a bit. But for another player yeah, that's why I always like people to do some experimentation and exploration when they practice is that let's say you were at the range and you had a 130 yard target. Let's experiment with like an eight iron or pitching with a few different clubs. And ultimately what solution gives you the best distance control and that dispersion control left to right. And a lot of that, as you said, will have to do with, can you keep the ball down a little bit and not let it balloon as much. And sometimes you can solve that with club selection, like people in the wind, like yeah. some people like, Oh, I need a punch shot. Take more clubs. Let's keep it simple. Move. Yeah. Two more clubs. Right. I'm a huge fan of simplifying things as much as possible on the golf course. It's funny you bring that up, John. I think this is actually going to be one of our, we're launching our YouTube in 2023. Like we want to take some of these principles that we learn on the show and experiment with them in a way that can help golfers that are watching. And one of those areas that I think I'm going to test, I'm a certified coach in mental golf type, and we've had their founder on a couple times. And I was just talking to him the other day about, he's like, you're a, an intuitive perceiving feeling player, right? So I'm the opposite of all number driven, analytical. I'm very creative. And he's like, it would be interesting for you to either play with a half set, three clubs, or 
to your point about taking more club, I've actually played really well by like taking the club that's 30 to 40 yards more stock than the shot I have, put it back in my stance, swing really smooth, and just flight these little baby draws in there. And I think it'd be an interesting experiment to try and see like what would happen if people yeah, did I that. That's why I, I love people getting outside of the box when they practice and, and doing some experimentation, because usually we just default to hitting the stock shot and that's okay for some players. But when you practice and I've been able to do this on a launch monitor at home where I'm just messing around and then I could get verified info being like, what happens if I try and swing at 110%? and really go after my irons. And for me, I actually, it's interesting. I think I'm an outlier. I actually, my dispersion's tighter and my strike is better when I go at it a little bit harder with my irons. I find when I tend to take something off, my path gets a little extreme and I'll overhook the ball, but that's the answer for my game. So if you took another player and they're doing these kind of tests and you know, it's not like you're some scientists and getting some intense things, you're just messing around and you're paying attention to the feedback. And then you can take that information and go on the course and say, okay, now I know from this distance, like this is my quote unquote stock shot that gives me the best chance of, of keeping the ball around my target. And I think everyone can do that on some level with or without technology. We all have different answers to our games, but the questions are always the same on the golf course. Like what's the right target and how can you keep the ball in a reasonable distance of that target? And I think that's the beauty of golf is that we can all get a little bit different answer to that question. John, you know, you've got your great new book out, The Four Foundations of Golf, very successful. And all listeners, you need to, to look into it, pick it up, order it, the whole deal. Everything's about the framework. You've built out this framework, right? And strategy about, you know, really following these core principles around your golf to be better. I think I heard you say in an interview, though, having the discipline to implement the framework on the course is the hardest part. Why is that? Is that just a human thing, John? Yeah, I think. Because you said, center of the green, stick to your three-quarter, but we don't. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's actually one of the greatest, I think, mysteries about the game and the thing I'm fascinated by. We had a guy named Jared Tendler come on our show. You should have him. He's a great mental coach. He works with poker players, traders, and he mm. used to play golf at a very high level. He still coaches golfers, but I've always found a connection between golf and poker. And I'm not, I know I'm not the only one is that that feeling we talked a lot about tilt, you know, when you're playing blackjack or poker and you get a bad beat and you're at the casino or playing against your buddies. And all of a sudden you start betting erratically because you're just so angry at that mistake you made. And I find that no different in golf. Like the situation I always talk about is when you hit a shot into the trees and of course, we're like looking at that little hole and you're like, oh, you know what the right answer is. Everyone knows the right answer is to like punch out and, and do the safe thing. That's not a total mystery. Like there's some very good stats around it. Mark Brody cited some great stats from the PGA Tour, Scott Fawcett. But I think we all know on some level, like just get the ball back to safety. But most players don't do that. They're so angry at their initial mistake that they start getting aggressive. And that's one situation where... It's a classic example of we know the right answer, but we don't do it because this game throws so many variables at us. And it's so hard to wrap your head around like what's reasonable in terms of the variables. And unfortunately, like it's very reasonable for a 10 handicap to go out there and maybe top a couple of shots, hit a few into the trees, three putt a bunch of times. Then all of a sudden it gets you into this mindset where you throw all the good advice out the window. So nothing I say in the book or I've said on my site for years is like revolutionary. Like I've truly not invented anything new. I'm almost like taking the information I've figured out as becoming a better golfer from other coaches, certainly more modern statistics and stuff like that. But I even put it at the beginning of my book, like this is not revelatory information. I'm just organizing it in a way that gets you to buy into it more so that when right. you are on the course, you're going to say, oh, you know what? I am going to listen to what John said. I'm not going to go for that pin that's tucked on the front left of the green. I'm not going to try and thread the ball through the trees. I'm not going to try and bash this putt in the hole. And that is golf's greatest challenge is like in the moment, how do you turn that devil on your shoulder off? I struggle with it too. As much as I'm the person giving out the advice, I have to remind myself of this stuff. Like when I'm playing in tournaments, it's really hard. So yeah, discipline, that's a very long-winded <laughs> response is like that is, you know, discipline is... You know, people don't love that word because it's not as fun and sexy and people want to like freewheel it and go after the pins and bash their drives and all that stuff. But 
yeah, you want to become a better golfer, like you're going to need quite a bit of discipline. So John, let me ask you this question. What do you think is more common? Do you think more amateur golfers don't have a strategy or do you think more amateur golfers go in with a strategy and just change it too often? No, I, I think I'm so happy that Mark Brody's book came out when it did. And then, you know, Scott made decade and there's more attention on like what is optimal strategy now. Like, I don't think it's terribly complicated for the average player to adopt these principles. And I tried to quote unquote, dumb it down as much as possible as I could in the book. You know, if you're a aspiring tour player or competitive golfer, like, yeah, you can take it a lot further and get very granular, but the rules aren't that difficult. In my view, I grew up and I'm sure you guys did. We were always told like, just play as safely as you can off the tee, like be a turtle hiding in a shell, like keep that ball in play. And then if anything, I think people were like, oh, you got to get aggressive with approach play to make birdies. And I find it's quite the opposite now. You know, knowing what I know about the numbers, what I've learned from Mark and Scott, you have to be more, and I think aggressive isn't even the right word. It's optimal. You have to really embrace driver off the tee where you can. And then I believe you have to pump the brakes on the approach shots and just do what you can to get it on the green or avoid being short-sighted or in big trouble. And I don't think a lot of people knew that for a long time. And I think a lot of people still don't know that as simple as it sounds. So yeah, I don't think strategy, you know, the old school version of strategy in golf you know, some stuff was right, but some stuff was was very wrong as well. Evan and I were talking about this off air, and we've talked a little bit about this with Scott and Lou. The three wood off the tee can be a real problem. <laughs> yeah. Right? Three woods, because three you, woods are the devil. I don't have one anymore. You don't think driver, you know, driver's not the play, but you're like, oh, I just got to get it out there still. But the data does not support that the three wood is, is going to do you a lot of favors. Either go for it or lay back, you know? Yeah, there's a decision to make for sure is Scott, I think explains it very simply. Like you have to find a reason not to hit driver. And he sat me down five or six years ago when I wanted to be a better competitor. And I was someone who was avoiding driver at all costs. And he's like, you're never going to get to where you want to go without hitting a driver. And I can tell you anecdotally, now that I've played with like tons of great tournament players, plus handicaps, like they're all good with their driver and they hit it as much as possible. I don't see a lot of people hitting four irons off the tee. So there's a decision to make is, do I try and advance the ball as far as possible? Or is there something about this hole that I cannot hit driver because it's, I'm going to reach trouble? Sometimes it's a dispersion issue, but sometimes it's, oh, there's a creek over there. And if I hit my driver, it's going to go in the creek. Therefore, I have to hit three wood or hybrid or whatever to lay back. I think a lot of people, me included for a long time, was like, Mm, this fairway is a little narrow. That makes me uncomfortable. I'm just going to hit my four iron or three wood. And the test thing that I've done, I did a whole article on a three wood, you know, four or five years ago. I actually hit my driver straighter than the three wood. It's a smaller head. It has less MOI. It's still very long. So it's hard to hit the center of the face. And most golfers are not more accurate with it. So yeah, it, it only makes sense to use that club. If there's a very specific reason that you don't want to reach trouble with the driver because of a distance issue in terms of like the hole being more narrow that's usually not a, a great decision one thing i was and from an equipment perspective i mean i've carried a three wood forever always and i have two hybrids <laughs> but i was thinking maybe dropping the three wood and going to a 16 or maybe even if i can get a 15 and a half degree hybrid oh yeah uh just because the looks better and i can get it out there and it's a hard club to hit. Yeah. I don't, I don't carry a three wood anymore. I have a five wood. That's the loft is jacked up quite a bit. So I have driver and then I have this whole gap till about five wood. I never used three wood off the tee for accuracy. It wasn't more accurate for me. And then from an approach shot perspective, I, I my tendency is to de-loft the club with less spin. So three, wood's just not a good club for me. I'm hitting these like low, you know, bullets, whereas the five would, at least I can get that into the air for an approach shot on a par five. And if I need to certain par fours, I will hit the five wood when I know I just can't hit driver. So yeah, I think there's a huge movement to going to more. I think a lot of golfers from a club fitting perspective need more loft with those clubs. And, and you're seeing a lot more of that in the way the manufacturers are designing the clubs. So I'm all for dropping the three wood, unless it's a great club for you. You know, that, that hybrids, depends on guys. the golfer. Go ahead, make fun of me. You yeah. Three I love my, my, my three hybrids <laughs> been my favorite club in my bag for 10 years. I absolutely love it. 
All right, guys, we're going to take a quick stop. Keep your seatbelts fast and stay seated, and then we'll get you right back on track and back to the show. I got a question for you. Do you want to stay sharp? Do you want to keep getting out of your way? Do you want to keep your mental game at tip-top shape? Well, this was a long-awaited ask for many of you, but we're finally doing it. It's called Train of Thought, our new email newsletter. Just launched, and if you want to get one nugget, one insight or thought that we're pondering every week that could keep your game sharp and help your mental game, all you got to do is go to thepartrain.com and subscribe to the Train of Thought newsletter today. We're only going to email you once a week, likely going to be Monday morning, start your week off right, never going to spam you. And guess what? You're going to get early access to all of our merchandise drops. We're going to launch it first, email subscribers, and then we'll launch it on social media, et cetera. So go to thepartrain.com, scroll down, you'll see a little spot to put your email in. Just drop that email in and you hop aboard the Train of Thought newsletter. All right, let's get back to the show. I want to dig into your game, John. I know you've gone down to a plus two now. You just won your club championship. I want to dig into those things in your game that's helped you get to these places that you've always wanted to get to. I know you struggled with temper in the past. I want to get to that. But before we get to that, I don't want to get too technical, but I actually do think this is important to revisit for the listener. You talked about face control. Mm -hmm. I don't know if a lot of 10 plus handicaps understand what that means or even how to do it. And it's an interesting and delicate discussion because anything in regards to control in the golf swing can get you in a lot of trouble real quick because you're right. Like I've struggled with this forever being a former baseball player. Like I'm either way too close or way too open. And that's caused really all of my issues because I don't have a consistent miss that I can go to, but I've never fully understood how to get better at knowing where that face is. So what are some things that have helped you? Where should a player start with that? As ridiculously simple as it sounds is, is just the awareness of the concept. When you're aware of something and you know what it is, and then you start paying attention to it more while you practice and play and absorb feedback, like that's where good things can happen. So what I mean by face control is how open or closed the club face is at impact. And when people ask me like, well, how do you get down to a scratch? I'm like, I honestly got better control of the face. Like I always could strike it pretty well. I was always a good iron player, but what would kill me is these massive pushes or pulls off the tee. And if you want to play your best golf, distance is great, but you have to keep it in play off the tee. And if you want to pursue driver, which will be the club that will get you there, you need to have a tighter window of how open or closed that face is at impact. And to be quite honest, like I'm not a technical player in the sense that like, I'm not against golf lessons. I got them as a kid. They were very helpful. I haven't gotten a golf lesson in 10 years. And most of the work I did with my driver to improve my face control was like, honestly, just being aware of how I was like orienting the face throughout my swing. I'm like, Oh, that one went left. Let me try and adjust that one. went right. Now I'm starting to like hone in on these internal feels. And for me, it's my trail forearm. And what my kind of right hand, how it's orienting on the club, I can make adjustments. We talk about this a lot on the sweet spot, like because I've focused on it so much and I'm not like videoing my swing and looking at what my body needs to be doing. It's more of like an internal athletic feel, like how I played other sports, like, oh, my jump shot is coming up short. Like I need to just press a little bit harder. Like there's just, you know, you play baseball, like there's just these things that you do in other sports that we kind of don't talk about in golf because it's more about like the technique. So yeah, there's the element of experimentation. Like, can I intentionally hit that shot with an open face to close face? Can I control doing like the opposite of your fault is a big practice method that I'm a huge advocate of. If I'm going out to the course and my club face is too open, like I've experimented in practice with closing the face down so I can make that little manipulation. Probably going on too long here, but I view like face control as like, I don't know if it's the skill. You could argue that impact location is the skill for most players, but I would say it's one and one A. Everyone has a different answer. I can't tell someone people like, well, how do you get face control with your driver? Like I, I the answer might be a little different from you, but I know that's what you need to be thinking about. It's interesting. It's a good conversation because I think in a lot of ways that massive pool or massive block that we have all hit is very mental. Right. Yeah, it can be. Because Absolutely. 
and to me, I've always like, you know, always known where the club hat is, right? My coach always said that growing up. That's what we're talking about. Because when you're under the gun, you're in an uncomfortable situation. You're on a hole that doesn't look right. Can you can you still put it out there, right? And yeah. not have that breakdown moment. Because that's where the breakdown moments come from, right? Whether you're coming down the stretch of a club championship or you're a fader and you're on a 440 dog leg left, right? So just kind of my take there a little bit. It's a blend. Like I said, there's, yeah, there's got to be something physical. you got to understand where, it, where it's at in your swing. I think the first step for a lot of people yeah. is... Adam and I always talk about this on our show is that you have to build these internal reference points. So you know what open square and closed feels like. And again, when we practice, we don't have an unlimited attention span. And if you're using that attention span on like looking at your swing or like doing some YouTube video stuff, you're placing all of your attention there on like what your body's doing. I'd challenge people to put their attention solely on a concept like that or strike or ground contact. Like people always like make fun of us because we think we're like, oh, they're too simple. <laughs> I would, <laughs> those are the three things I think about after I hit every golf shot, whether I'm in my house hitting into the net at the range on the course, where did I hit it on the face? How was the face orientation? Where did the ball start? And how was contact? Totally. That's it. Like you, you could complicate things way more and you might have to, if you're getting swing instruction, like you might need help with this stuff, Sure. but for the golfers going at it on their own, like I would say like, just dumb it down to those three things. And when you understand what they are, I believe like that, I think everyone has that inner athlete in them. And then that part of you can come out more and you can solve that problem a little bit better. Yeah. Well, I think what you're saying, John, is like, you have to understand your tendencies, right? Yeah. So the Serm's oh, point, yeah. if you know, cause Serm's least favorite shots, low left right he hates missing it left yeah and i struggle to driver. draw the ball right so yeah yeah and then so and the left is down <laughs> for Cermak, if he knows that if he goes to a tee shot with trouble left he knows that if he gets a little quick in the transition it's more likely to have a miss left yep so then from a mental standpoint your executional key can be lightness at the top or tempo in those moments I'll, that you have tension, right? Absolutely. I'll, I'll give you an example for me because I'm someone who had, was struggled with a really into out path. So I would, you know, I came from someone who like would really struggle with overhooks and stuff like that. <laughs> Honestly, for the last five plus years, I've been just thinking fade. As simple as that sounds, like just <laughs> doing the opposite. And what does that do? That gets my path a little less into out, the face more open. And then I can hit a tighter draw or even straight shot now because I was coming from such a extreme side of the spectrum that I just kept moving it closer and closer and closer to functional that now that singular opposite thought helped me. Like sometimes we're like, you know, we're like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And for me, like I just found some other doing the opposite was very beneficial to my inherent fault. So I wasn't thinking like hook less. If you sometimes see me step up to a hole with driver, I could be rehearsing a big fade swing. I'm not going to hit a fade, but yeah. that helps me neutralize the issue. Again, something I figured out through experimentation. That's why like, I'm a big fan of people doing this type of self-exploration because that's how you kind of become your own coach. Like You're figuring out your tendencies and, and how you can solve some of them. And if you need lessons at some point, I'm not against that. If you need help, I'm a huge advocate of working with a swing professional when you need it. But there's a lot of those answers you could, I think, solve yourself if you're placing your attention in the right places. Well, let's dig into your game, John. I know every podcast you're on, they go through the four foundations to build a successful golf game. We're going to talk about those, maybe in, even integrate that into how that's helped you go to a plus two. But I want to know, maybe let's start with the club championship, John, something you've always wanted to win. Everyone can relate to that event that everybody wants to do well in, whether it's a Saturday Nassau to a scramble tournament to club championship member guest to a competitive amateur or pro event. Talk us through that week and what did you do differently to help you finally win the thing you always had wanted to? I think, you know, for me, I've been playing competitively now again. I, my background is, is like, I was a very okay-ish junior golfer. I played some in high school, a little bit division. I say a little bit, I mean a very little bit division three golf. I wasn't that good back then competitively, but when I turned 30, I started competing again. And 
I played a lot. I've played a lot of tournament rounds over the last seven years and gotten myself to a point where like, I'm a pretty good mid-am player. I've just missed getting into the US mid-am two years in a row. I've done well in some local tournaments. So I've put my game through the trial by fire and, and learning how to deal with that pressure. But what's interesting was is that the club championship would always be the tournament I was most nervous for. Like I can go play a big tournament now in my section and like I'm not nervous on the first tee. I'm just, and we talked about this amongst ourselves because we're all friends who we compete against. And yeah, because it's amongst your peers and like everyone wants to beat everyone and you're like, oh yeah, he's probably the favorite. And what if he doesn't? So there's a lot of like pressure I was putting on myself for expectations. So I think the first few years I, I went at it, I didn't play poorly, but I played tight. And this year, I think I didn't do anything differently. I just felt very calm about it. I was okay with winning or not winning. We actually did a podcast on goals about a month before we had the club championship. And I remember very clearly saying, I'm like, my my goal is to enjoy my competition. If I win or not, like, of course I want to win. I'm competitive, but like, that's not why I'm going out there. And I just felt like very free and calm. And I actually had a very clear vision of myself winning. So like, I, I think I was just, you know, ready for it. The experience is ready. And of course, there's a lot of like stuff you can't control in match play because our format, we had two stroke play rounds for seeding and then a round of 16. So we've got a lot of great, you know, we have seven or eight golfers who are scratch or better around there. So we've got some really good players. So, you know, one putt goes in, one putt doesn't go in, like it's a thin margin. So a lot of my putts dropped. I was very calm. I think my overall point is, is like, I didn't do anything special to make it happen. It just kind of happened. It was the culmination of experience. I guess some good luck, a lot of blunders and failures in the past in the club championship. I had some very embarrassing moments. I missed an 18 inch putt in front of 70 people a few years ago. That was really embarrassing. And that was probably important for me to happen. And I've had a lot of bad moments in other tournaments. So I guess it was a culmination of all that experience just made me comfortable going in there and being like, Hey, I'm ready. If I win, great. If I don't, yeah, that's okay too. Why was that important real quick, sir? I want to dig in on that. Why was, sure. why do you think that was important? And cause a lot of people that listen to this show and all of us have missed a short putt or had a really embarrassing moment. And then Everybody that has. continually yeah. creates almost baggage of prevention and our yeah. brain sees danger of this pain we've experienced. It's trying to prevent us from having it again, which a lot of times more so gets in our way. So I really want to hit on this. Why was it yeah. important for you and how did it help you? I mean, it, it really cut me deep when it happened. It was 2020. I wasn't having a great summer. I really wasn't playing that well. I got into a playoff for the last spot in the stroke play and we were in a playoff and I looked like I was going to keep winning each hole. And the guy kind of, you know, was hanging around on the last hole. I hit my shot to five feet and he missed the green. And we had a lot of people watching. People love to watch playoffs at the club. And in my mind, I'm like, oh yeah, it's over. And I missed the five footer and I went to go tap in the next putt. And when I say 18 inches, I probably mean 10 inches or eight inches. My, I blacked out, I think. Something in my brain thought it was match play. And I just kind of went up to it and quick raked it and I missed it. And everyone like gasped. And I was like, oh my God, I just missed. Like, honestly, it could have been eight inches. It was next to the hole. And it was so embarrassing. He made the putt. He beats me. It cut me real deep. I put it past me a week later, but like it left a scar mentally. I didn't beat myself up over it. I think the most important thing I took away from it is like nothing, <laughs> nothing can be worse than that. It was really embarrassing. I think everyone at the club felt bad for me, of course, but like, you know, people were talking about it. Like, oh, did you see what Sherman did? And I knew people were talking about it. I just kind of had to like absorb it and move on. And yeah, I think it kind of like freed me up a bit rather than just, you know, I know I can make an eight inch putt, <laughs> but it, like it was the worst a, has already happened. Yeah. It was kind of like, like I mean, I've had some embarrassing, yeah, I've had some embarrassing moments on the golf course. Like we all have, but that just like took it to another level. Cause it was in front of a lot of people and I'm not, I've never really played in front of that many people before. And now this year I played in front of more than that in the, in the finals and felt very comfortable, like didn't even see them there. So yeah, I think that horrible thing was actually like freed me up in the long term. It's a great story. I mean, not a, it wasn't great for you at the time. But yeah, no, but it's, it's happened where, where to, you're at yeah. now. It's I mean, happened to everyone. Right. Like on it's some a, level, like we've all done a, stupid stuff. Yeah. Like I, I've done some really dumb things too. I put them in my like temper outbursts, like breaking clubs. Sure. Like 
I've done some really dumb, embarrassing things on the golf course. That just happened to be the icing on the cake, that one. For sure. Let's go back to this comfort factor. This different level of comfort this past year at the club championship to win it. All right. Well, let's dig into that. So, okay. You know, maybe that missed putt a couple years ago. It freed you up. Like, like, you know, that, that helped. But what exactly was it? Is it your breathing? Is it, you just finally feel comfortable with how to play these holes every year off the tee? Is it just little techniques you've instilled? Because what a year you had to get to a plus two, right? This is just one piece of your great year. So I'm curious about that comfort level. You know, it's so hard to draw the line in golf or any sport, like where the mental and then physical takes over. I would tell you that I've been working really hard on having a process on the course, especially for tournaments, just where I can get to a place where my primary reason for playing competitively is to have fun. I'm never going to go pro and I, I just enjoy competing. I like it, but I also want to be able to do it in a way that's like enjoyable to me. Like I know a lot of competitive golfers that I think are fairly miserable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to be honest with you. So I, I had to figure out a way where I can like, yeah, I'm going to be feeling this pressure. How can I get myself in a spot where I can deal with it? And for me, a lot of that had to do with like, I call it my mental cocoon. I, I've built a process, a routine where I can kind of go into this place before each shot. And it's quite comforting now because I find like there's a whole separate topic, but like modern life is so distracting with like social media and everything. And I always tell my yeah. wife this, like when I go on the golf course and play in a tournament, I can get into such a deep, intense focus now. And I just love it. I've been working on this for years in other tournaments and that, you know, how could I go in front of 150 people watching me in the final match, which was like 36 holes and not wanting to embarrass myself is just, I went into this place before each shot and that all that noise didn't exist. Maybe it's the zone. I don't know what it was, but well, it, it happened really well that day. I've, I got to do a quick follow up here because, John, I was listening to other things you've been talking about it and you kind of hit on it here. I heard you say something like, This is my goals out there. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to stick to my framework and I'm going to accept the results. Yeah. It's not complicated. How would you rank? <laughs> wait, this is what I want to hear. How would you rank those from easiest to hardest? <laughs> I think accepting the results is the hardest. And that will lead to fun <laughs> because like, let's say you're having some bad outcomes and your, your tendency is to yeah. not have as much fun. I think that's where the stats are very helpful. Like someone like Lou posting the stats, like what are reasonable outcomes for different skill levels and being like, oh, that wasn't such a bad shot. Or like, and when you know, and you're in the heat of the moment, you're like, I just hit a crap drive. And you're like, well, it was going to happen eventually. Like no one has perfect control <laughs> over like strike and face and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and sometimes it just happens at an inopportune moment and you just have to like absorb that and move on to the next shot. You know, the idea of framework is hard. Yeah, it's hard. Exactly. That's why like some people be like, it can't be that simple. I'm like, well, no, it's not that simple to explain (laughs) it or understand it. It's doing it. That's the hard part. And like this game makes it the hardest of all the games, I believe, to stick with it. Rotella told us this, John. Rotella was like some players he's worked with is like, wait, Doc, I got to do this on every swing. That's (laughs) like really hard. He goes, yeah, you're damn right. It's hard. Guess what was hard, too? Bunker shots. Did you figure that out? Yeah, that was hard at first, but yeah, if you want to get better, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. And it's also like, what level of play do you want out of this game? Like I'm for right now, I'm enjoying seeing like how far I can push myself. Like I would love to get into the US mid-am. I would love to maybe like, I don't know if winning local tournaments is for me just yet, but I'm starting to get some like top tens, top twenties. Like I want to see how far I can go competitively. But at the same time, like that involves I keep asking myself, like, are you having fun? Like, sometimes I'll pull out of tournaments if I feel like I'm getting burnt out. So, yeah, I think everyone has to decide, like, their own level of commitment in the game. Like, yeah, if you're someone who's like a 20 handicap and you want to get down to a 15, I don't expect you to have the mental discipline to go through a routine and pick a smart target on every shot. And I say this in the book, but if you can do it 30% more or 40% more, that's how you get to a 15. And as you get lower and lower... (laughs) the strokes get harder and harder to come off. And that's where like the level I'm at now is like, well, maybe it's the difference between me getting in this mental zone over a putt and maybe I'll make one or two more of those over the course of like three or four rounds. And that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah, That's interesting to me. It might not be for someone else. But Ev, we were talking about this, these gaps, right? John, you study this stuff. 20 to 15, 15 to 10, 10 to five, five to scratch. That journey always has those little pieces, right? 
we just talked about smart targets 30% of the time for a client. Yeah. And it, and it, and fortunately, if your handicaps higher, like the easier it is for those, like I can generally, like, I can tell you mm. with complete confidence that if someone like, and I've gotten plenty of these testimonials, like people have read the book and they're like, oh, I just adopted some of like, I was just doing strategy all along. I just lost four strokes overnight. Like it's that, some of the stuff's that simple or yeah, we get the maybe same practice messages. routines or like, honestly, like really, I think the the part of the book that's been most influential for people is like the first section, like just people like managing their expectations and, and redefining their relationship with the golf. Like that change in mindset alone can lower your scores dramatically. Cause I can tell you as someone who probably spent a decade with like misaligned expectations and skill level, my scoring sucked because of it. Sure. You know, I, I would lose yeah. my temper after a few holes because I wasn't hitting the shots I thought I was entitled to, but really wasn't. And sometimes it's just as simple as a mindset change for some golfers. So that's how crazy this game is. All right, we're going to take a quick break here from one of our sponsors that I think a lot of you are going to love for the upcoming holidays, etc. I'll get you right back to the show. So you guys have heard of Sticks Golf. If you've been listening to the show for a while, they were a great partner of ours almost a year ago, and we sold thousands of these sets. And so many of these people that have gotten Sticks Clubs have DM'd us and told us that they love them. They're the best clubs for the price that you can get them. Right now, you can basically get a full set of Sticks Golf Clubs from $699, or this is the coolest thing. This is something they didn't have last year. You can do payments. So payments as low as $63 a month. So you can get a full set of clubs. I'm talking woods, irons, wedges, putter, bag, head covers, towel, you name it, and pay $63 a month until it's paid off. And it'll only take about 10 months based on their cheapest price. So go to sticks.golf, S-T-I-X.golf, enter the code TRAIN, get yourself 10% off. They're having a flash sale right now for 20% off. I don't know how long they're going to run that for. So you could get even more off. This would be a great gift for someone who is starting in the game of golf, wants kind of a beginner set upgrade from hand-me-down clubs for maybe relatives or friends. Or if you just have hand-me-down clubs that you need an upgrade and you've been playing for a while and you'd like something that doesn't break the bank, Sticks is an amazing option. They're one of the fastest growing companies in the last two years in golf. So sticks.golf, enter the code train, get yourself 10% off. All right, let's get back to the show. John, I once had a buddy who just started playing golf, hit it on the back of a green, had like 35 feet, three-putted, said, I'm never hitting it on the back of the green again never <laughs> and i was like well yeah you're you're gonna That's be pretty gonna unhappy happen. you're yeah. gonna do it again uh, yeah you're gonna do it uh, again but maybe work on your putting yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. john i don't want to this is an occupational hazard with me i tend to get a little deep at times i'm gonna draw well, i love going bit. deep don't worry about for it. a second <laughs> look out so, here we go here we go uh i actually think it's one of my favorite parts about the game of golf it's kind of speaks to something you mentioned a few minutes ago which is it's great practice for staying even keel, being okay when you don't get what you want. Hmm. Because yeah. if you think about it, think about the greatest things you've gotten in your life. I bet you they didn't happen the way that you imagined they would or something that was really painful, like missing that in that moment, missing an eight inch putt. You don't realize that that was a catalyst moment to help you win the club championship two to three years later. Right? So I think actually what you spoke to was that intention and that attitude of my job is to enjoy this. And I don't know, we don't know what is going to lead to what. So this idea of not getting what we want, it's actually not even accurate because something that quote, we don't want might lead to something we want and get us closer. So it's really that practice of like shoulder shrug. Okay, let's go yeah. find it. And let's do the best I can with this one. I think that's the interesting thing that I pull out is you clearly stated, I don't need to win to be happy. So clearly you accepted a bad result, a result less than winning, which reduced your tension and the pressure you put on yourself, your expectations. But then in the moment, you also seem to manage things that quote, didn't go your way better. Yeah, I think, I mean, golf, 
I'm so glad I got bit by the bug when I was 11 because it's it's taught me a lot of great life things. But I think honestly, one of the most important emotions we can have for the game, and you know, there's all studies on this now. It's like the greatest what well, it can help you live longer, stuff like that. It's just gratitude. Like the simple thing that like I, I was not grateful that I got to play for a long time. I just kind of took it for granted. And I would go out there and it was kind of this like make or break proposition where like you either shoot the score or or you don't. And if you don't shoot the score, then like that was not a good experience. And that's a really ridiculous way to play the game of golf. Cause why would you want to spend four or five, six hours or more, you know, travel time back in time forth to the course? I think becoming a father like helped put that into perspective because when I did miss that eight inch putt, I was going to go home and my kids didn't care one way or another. Like, what are you even talking? Like I tried to explain it to my wife and she felt bad for me, but she's like, okay, you know, we got to deal with the kids now. Like let's, yeah. let's, let's move next. on from this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, this so, is a good segue, John, because actually our intern Taylor, he's a big fan of yours. He texted me before we started this interview. The one thing he wanted to know, he's a dad as well. How do you take some of the principles from your book and what you've learned in golf <laughs> and use it with kids, you know, wh whether it's for your own kids being a dad or first time golfers, you know, starting out? I, I believe expectation management is, you know, I'm almost 40 now. I see this in parallels and all types of things, whether it's psychology, self-help advice, all that stuff. Like if you can't, manage your expectations properly in life. Like you're setting yourself up to be an unhappy person. I really don't want to get parenting advice here, but I don't think I'm the best parent in the world, but that's the hardest thing about being a parent is like what you expect the experience is going to be like, and then what it actually is. And more importantly, like who your kids are going to develop into. Um, and I realized very quickly on, especially like, you know, I have a, a nine-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter. Like I realized quickly, like my son is not going to be like how I was as a kid. And I was expecting that for a little bit. I'm like, he's a totally different person. So like when I let that go, I think that freed me up. So there's a lot of things I think in life we have to like, you know, in golf, like I would just squeeze so hard and try and control everything because I thought I was, I, my expectations were as I could control it. And the more I let go, the better I played. And I think that's yeah. a universal concept in life. We're all control freaks on some level. But John, and, and from life and kids back to the golf course, we're not going to be perfect with our expectations. No. <laughs> and it's just about how we respond to maybe yeah, I think so. the, right, the mismanagement of expectations, the wrong decision. It's going to happen, right? But it's just golf's revealing. We talk about it all the yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't I'm, define I'm, you, it reveals you. I'm thinking about like next year, I think, you know, I'll go back to the club championship as, you know, the champion now I'll have to deal with a different set of expectations. Like, oh, I want to win this thing again. Maybe that will hurt my chances. I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to find out. So as you said, like I struggle with these things a lot and think about them quite a bit because, you know, the better I play, the more I can expect of myself. And then I get stuck on that treadmill and I'm like, oh boy, now I'm like falling into that trap where like, you know, where my handicap is trending is how my enjoyment of the game is trending. And that's not good either. So yeah, it's, it's hard for me too, as much as I try and help other people with this stuff. Well, before we sign off, I know we got a few more minutes and then we're going to tell people about the book and where to find you, but I'd love to close with double bogey avoidance. I know it's been talked about a lot. I think your site Fighting the war of double bogeys. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of that's the my theme, uh, right. Yeah, that that's my unofficial. Well, you can call yeah. it the official tagline of practical yeah. golf. Yeah, I think it's similar to our discussion earlier, which is I don't think anybody tries to make a double bogey. A lot of times, no. <laughs> we feel like we black out, things speed up, and I don't even know how I made a double from where I was. Right. So yep. avoidance is another tricky. You don't usually get a lot of great results if you're trying to avoid things. What is the offensive version of double bogey avoidance? What are the main ways to do that? If someone's like, I want to make less doubles, but I don't know how to do it. What would you say? I, I, I think the lowest hanging fruit for most players is targeting club selection as strategy. I think a lot of, a lot of the strategic advice out there is preventing big numbers. And that could be what club you're selecting off the tee, the target. I think a lot of it has to do with approach shots. Even in the short game, you know, we we get into situations where we have a challenging shot and we bite off more than we can chew. And then, you know, you have that shot that fails to get on the green or you skull it over because you were trying maybe a technique and a shot that you're not capable of hitting. 
a lot of it is decision making. A lot of it is emotional control. If you had three or four holes in the beginning of the round that you're not pleased with, and all of a sudden now you're in that like tilt headspace that I was talking about earlier, you're probably going to start making some doubles. You know, you're you're not you're just going to lose whatever routine you have, your your temper, and that leads to decision making. Like the psychology and 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 strategy are very closely connected. Skill level for sure. The more skilled you become as a ball striker, the less doubles you're going to make. So it's it's a complete package. And that's really like the big problem of the game is not how many birdies you can make. It's how many of these big numbers I can make less of. So it's everything together. If you lose the ball off the tee, chances are it's going to happen. Don't lose the ball off the tee. And just remember, the trees are full of heroes. And that's so, and and when people like I used to be someone who be would like <laughs> I don't want to open up a can of worms at the end of this, but I'll just don't like leave it. it here with like do it, John. I used to think like putting was so much more influential on scoring than it really was, and and I think Mark Brody's work clearly outlined that it's still important, but not as important as we thought. Because I was like, oh, that eight footer you make, you know, that's the shot you remember and solidifies the score. But can you hit an eight footer out of bounds? Can you five put an eight footer? Like the damage you can inflict off the tee is far greater than a putt. And that's where a lot of golfers are losing their strokes. And that's a combination of skill, target selection, and approach shots as well. Failing to miss greens because you don't have the skill or you're making bad decisions. Like that's where the big numbers are starting from. It feels like when you got on the putting green, like that's where they ended. Everything that happened beforehand influenced that score way more. Like whether you're going to putt for a triple bogey or a par it's not whether or not that putt went in like most of the damage was done beforehand so like that's why like the long game is where you have to clean up most of those big mistakes like that's where the usually the big leak on the ship is be disciplined right it's hard yeah it's well, really hard and again like <laughs> and, and and you don't have to do it like you have to pick and choose your own like level of commitment like not everyone has to be disciplined 100 percent of the time I'm just looking for, you know, if you want to get better, you're going to need a little bit more of it and how much of it you want to do, you know, that's up to you and how deep you want to go. Or at least starting to tie. We talk about this a lot. We learned this from Dr. Joe Parent of Zen Golf, like starting to tie commitments or intentions or discipline to results. And like, just look at your card, like what happened on the shots you did, what happened on the shots you didn't. And then your only goal is increasing your discipline or your commitment or your intention, it's a really fun executional practice that is not rooted in score. And then you can just see, you know, how it improves. Yep. Not, I mean, golf's not the the physical skills are not the only thing you have to work on, obviously. Like we all know this, but like, how do you do it? And like, that's why it's good to put some ideas out there. And like, I'm, I'm one resource for that. And there's plenty others too. Well, the four foundations in your book is expectation management, which you talked about, strategy, practice, and I think really intentional practice yes, is what you're getting absolutely. at, not zombie range sessions like you speak about. And then a sharp mental game, which we talked a little bit about today as well. Obviously, at Practical Golf on Twitter, practical.golf on Instagram, the four foundations of golf is the book, Amazon number one bestseller right now. Congrats on that. Sweet spot Thank podcast. You. Anywhere else you want to send people and anything else you want to reiterate or say that you didn't have a chance to today? No, you covered it all. Thank you for all those prompts. Like, yeah, the, the, I I've been writing on my site for eight years, but I think a lot of people kept emailing me and be like, how do you organize all this? I'm like, let me do that. So I, I took two years to write a book. So yeah, if you want to like get everything I have to offer in a nutshell, then yeah, four foundations of golf on Amazon. So thanks to that. The only thing I didn't mention is like, I'm, it's like dawned upon me at the end of this episode. I'm probably the hundredth person who's going to tell you this, but Evan, you look exactly like Ted from How I Met Your Mother. Has anyone ever said? <laughs> I've that actually to you? never heard that one. I never. Did. I'm like looking at you and like I love my wife and I love that show. I'm like this dude looks like Ted from How I Met Your Mother. I've heard Skylar Aston from Pitch Perfect a lot, and I oh, heard Shia LaBeouf, and I've, I've heard gotten Shia LaBeouf for me. Have you? <laughs> Yes. I've never heard Ted from uh, uh, it's, I it's your mother. It the last ten minutes, it like dawned upon me. I'm like looking at you, like you look so familiar. I feel like I, I can sit you down. Glass Tara, Glass I can Tara sit you down and talk about how I met my wife. <laughs> uh, John, this is awesome. We could, I think, we could go up for a few more hours, but an no, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I appreciate. It. Thank you. I love that you guys are trying to help golfers with similar topics because 
the thing that I want to do, and I think you guys too, is like, how can I help people enjoy this crazy game a little bit more? Because we're obviously all obsessed with it and hooked on it, but how can we make that relationship a little bit more healthy so that we're not beating ourselves up and losing our temper and all those things that golf tempts us to do? So thank you for fighting the good fight as well. It was a great conversation. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to have you back. I'm going to get your book now as well. I'm going to send I, you a copy because I, I gave you that that Ted comment. That's a handsome <laughs> guy, though. He's a good looking guy. So I'm, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. You. I'll take it as a compliment. We'll, well thank you, John. Yeah. Best of luck. We're going to have to maybe bring you back around next year's club championship. There's a ton to break down, but I think this is a really great overall foundational chat. So thank you so much, John. Thanks, Thanks guys. John. Hey, guys, this is Evan. Real quick before you hop off the train, I got something for you. It's called the train of thought. It's our new email newsletter. Would you like to get one nugget, insight, or thought that we're pondering every week that could help keep you sharp and help your mental game? Go to thepartrain.com and subscribe to the Train of Thought newsletter today. It's really the best way to enjoy the ride. See you guys.